This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am here with, what, another conversation. I know, what are the chances it's not like it's a really regular thing or anything? Well, today's conversation episode is very exciting. I mean, again, I always say this, they're all so exciting. But in this episode, I spoke with Cora Beth Fraser all about, I mean, mythology generally. I kind of kept in everything in this episode because while we went a little rambly, it all was so interesting and important and mythological. So you kind of get it all here. We begin by talking about myth broadly, about teaching myth. We go on to talk what we were there to talk about, which is 
the labyrinth and some really interesting theories that that Corbeth has noticed, as well as theories that she has when it comes to the labyrinth and autism. Yes, connections between the Minotaur in the labyrinth and autism. Absolutely beyond fascinating topic and just way at looking at these myths, ways at looking at the Minotaur as a creature, as a character, as Asterion, which is his real name if you're not calling him by the type of creature or the singular type of creature that he is. So this episode's really about Asterion as a half-human being living in this labyrinth and the connections that can be made to autism, but also just about Asterion in a much more sympathetic light, really looking at this character of the Minotaur, Asterion. I'm really so thrilled with this episode, so please enjoy. Conversations, Starry-Eyed Asterion, The Minotaur, The Labyrinth, and Autism with Dr. Cora Beth Fraser. So this all came about because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to forget even all of the context beyond, uh, you know, neurodivergence and the labyrinth and basically how much I just wanted to have you on to talk about that so why don't we go from there yeah brilliant um thank you for having me on um thank you you know I've known you from Twitter for ages and and um listened to your your podcast and various interviews and so yeah it's really exciting to get a chance to talk to you Oh, thank you so much. Honestly, it's such a thrill that everybody, anybody that wants to come on my show and then have all these great conversations. I just love it so much. So thank you. No, I mean, what you're doing with the podcast is brilliant because I've been teaching uh, an undergraduate course on Greek and Roman myth for over 10 years now. And, you know, back when I started, there was, there was, there was nothing in terms of resources to point students towards, you know, when students would say, look, I want to know more about this, or I want to find out, you know, it was like, well, I have this really boring book that you could read. And, you know, now I get to say, oh, look, well, you know, there's this podcast and, you know, there's all this stuff online and there's things and there's, you know, it's all good. And so it's much more exciting now that there's people like you out there kind of in the online space doing stuff that, well, stuff that people want to listen to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, the more the more stuff that's out there, the the better and the more you can make it interesting and relevant and fun, the better. Um, so, yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's high praise and also <laughs> totally why I started this for the same reason. Like I did my undergrad 10 years ago and that was the same you know like I mean certainly we had the internet but we didn't have the types of like resources and fun ways of any of, of learning any of it and I just had this dusty old textbook to learn and a great professor thankfully but you know other than that yeah it was sort of you're on your own <laughs> yeah and I, I think the thing with myth is 
it's constantly being reworked and reinvented and changed and adapted to different environments. And so you've kind of got to see it in the wild. You've got to see it happening. You've got to see people in your own time receiving it and changing it and making it new and different. Uh, Otherwise, you don't understand what was going on in the ancient world. Um, You know, if you start looking at it as something that happened and that finished, then you don't really get the sense of what myth is there to do. It's so true. And that's, it's, that's, you know, if I get a bad review, half of them are that, or like, you can't go back and criticize this. It's like an untouchable, you know, human truth. And I'm like, that is a wild way to view these things. Like, you're just so wrong. (laughs) It is. And, you know, it's, it's so depressing as well to see it like that, you know, as some kind of text that can't be changed, or something that, you know, existed in one single original form that you can't mess around with. Original myth, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, what's that about? It, it's it's brilliant, you know, to, to see it changing and to see it used and, and put into different contexts because then you can get a sense of how flexible it was in the ancient world mm. and how people could just play with it if they wanted to. And they could do it to get all kinds of messages across and, you know, to make themselves look good to make other people look good, to make people look bad. You know, it was it was the the, the way of communicating that that reached everybody. And it still is. And if you stop using it like that, then you're missing all the good bits. Yep, I agree completely. I, I just like half an hour before I got on our call, I recorded another a, a second part in my like redoing of the story of Perseus because I've told his story it was like the second episode of this podcast which means I was using like I think it was like Wikipedia of all things like (laughs) to tell this story you know like four years ago when I just thought like two people were gonna hear it and now I'm like oh my god we're redoing some of these because they're so important and now that I'm you know four years in and have access to everything I do I'm like I'm gonna retell you all like I'm gonna retell the story I'm gonna tell you all the variations especially with somebody like Perseus like one of these most ancient heroes right like earliest heroes yeah and yeah you have this like thousand years of what changed and you know of course Medusa is like this huge part of it because she's my whole life now oh yeah (laughs) but yeah it's just you know you have to look at at how much changed and what that meant and why the changes were made or or what we don't have and oh it's just yeah yeah and never-ending fascination that's the fun bit and and that's how come we have um at my university we have a whole undergraduate module on greek and roman myth you know we're not we're not telling the stories we're looking at the variations and looking at the changes and looking at Mm. the changes in context you know why Mm. might Ovid have done this to this particular story and what was going on at the time oh I love that that was not in the myth classes when I took them and I am thrilled to know that it is because I think that's a thing that does get missed unless you're deep in this world like you Mm. it's just you hear the story or you read one book that retells it and you know, so often they don't remotely reference variations. And so you just think it's just this, this story, this one, like static story, which is so not true that, yeah, it's so important to look at it like that. I I love hearing that. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I get students and they, they, they sign up to the course and it's called myth in the Greek and Roman worlds. And, and, and they, they start it. And then about a month in, they, they get in touch with me and they say, but I thought we were just going to read myths. 
no, no, that's not no. what you're doing. There's a whole world of interesting stuff that's going on with myth, and reading it is just the start. And, you know, by the end of the module, they're like, wow, this is just mind-blowing. It's brilliant. There's so much stuff. And yeah, there's a real kind of sense of excitement that comes out of it when you do realize just how much it was plugged in to everything in the ancient world and how it's still doing it. Mm -hmm. And how many years are in between some of our most common sources is a thing I try to drill in so much these days. Like, you know, Hesiod to to Euripides, (laughs) right? You're like... Massive. It's huge. And so often that's completely forgotten just because you think of ancient Greece as this like static place or let alone when you combine it with Rome and and everything that comes with that. Oh my gosh. It's just, yeah. I I like to say lately, my biggest go-to is like, you know, Shakespeare to now think about what changed and what that might mean for that context back then, because looking at Shakespeare as a, as the like line for us is just really like emphasizes how big a gap there was. It does. And I mean, I started as a a Latinist, you know, Mm. my, my main interest was, was Roman literature and that, that was where I started. And then, you know, I, I kind of, I learned Greek so that I could read the Greek literature, you know, so that I could read Homer to understand Virgil better, Mm. which granted is completely the reverse of the way people would, you know, probably (laughs) tell you to do it. But, you know, that, that was, that was my interest. And, you know, the more you start thinking about the massive gaps in time and in culture and in, you know, just, just the whole outlook of people at different stages in the ancient world, the more you realize that, you know, you are talking about something much bigger than just somebody reading a story and copying it. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, yeah, there's just so, oh, there's just so much to it. (laughs) I've recently been diving deeper into um, the early Greek myths, Mm. two volume by Mm. Gantz. And I just love that so much because I'm, I'm, constantly doing a similar thing using theoi.com which is one of my favorite references in the world it's just so amazing oh helpful it's unbelievable (laughs) but the way it is in the gantz textbooks is like more so because you get a lot of the visual representations and then laid out for you so that you're not like bouncing through all the sources on theoi which i do anyway but but to have both of them together to to put the episodes together now is like it's just that's really good i mean i i I think the more you look into the visual tradition, the the more mm-hmm. interesting it, it gets because, you know, it's not always identical to the written versions that we have. And, mm-hmm. you know, so many times when people are thinking about myth, they're thinking about what was written. They're thinking about the stories. Often they're thinking about Ovid um, or mm-hmm. Hesiod or Homer. And that's kind of as far as they go. But once you start looking at the actual images that we have, you, you realize that there's more going on there than just the stories that were told and a, a whole different tradition in a way of representing things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I have to admit that that's one of my areas of, of interest. I, I like images. I've always liked mm-hmm. images. I've always been very um, visual in terms of the way that I think about things. I've always been interested in art. Um, mm. I used to work as a mural painter. Oh, wow. Um, 
I started out working as a, a, a painter because I did art at school and it was all good. And then um, I, I started painting people's walls. And I can't remember how I got into it, but they seemed to like it and they paid me money to do it. <laughs> and I needed money to get through university because, you know, I was, I was a first generation university student. Mm. Nobody in my family had ever been to university before. Everybody was broke. Nobody had any money. So, you know, I, I needed a job. And so I figured, well, I could paint walls. And so I did for years. I went around painting people's walls and doing all kinds of random things. You know, I painted um, walls in restaurants. I painted kids' bedrooms. I painted beaches on walls in tanning salons and all <laughs> kinds of things. And then I started, it started feeding into to what I was doing and what I was reading. And, you know, everything sort of came across as a visual thing. And then when I came to come up with a topic to do for my PhD, I was a bit stumped. And, and at the time, I was working as a designer of um, historical chess sets. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, granted, it's a niche market, but <laughs> at cool. the time, you know, somebody was paying me to do it. So I was, I was inventing these historical chess sets of, of different battles from history. And one of the ones that they wanted was um, Romans versus Britons, you know, Boudicca and all of that. Mm. And um, so what they also wanted was accompanying documentation from ancient sources that effectively des described the people. And, you know, so that I could say, oh, yeah, well, I gave, you know, this general this particular hair color because it says so in Suetonius. Um, so, you know, I, I went off looking through the ancient sources for material that I could use for designing mm -hmm. chess sets. And I went straight to Tacitus because I'd read loads of Tacitus before. Um, I'd read Tacitus at school. I'd read Tacitus various. I love Tacitus. It's great. And he's, you know, very striking, very, you know, um, powerful historian in terms of describing things. Brilliant. Tacitus will have me sorted. Great. Turns out absolutely rubbish for designing chess sets who knew <laughs> so <laughs> so I had to go back to the drawing board with the whole chess set thing and I had to do lots more looking around but for a topic for my research I, I started thinking well why is Tacitus no good for designing chess sets mm -hmm. and why doesn't he describe things and if he doesn't describe things why has nobody really picked up on that and so that was the whole thing that I spent three years investigating why is Tacitus rubbish for chess sets I didn't call it that because <laughs> you know that doesn't really go down well with an academic yeah. <laughs> audience but you know essentially that's what it was yeah um, so the whole uh, visual thing, the the relationship between text and image and description and all of that, that that's all been kind of my area of interest. And then, yeah, recently I've started drawing and um, uh, I never really did that before. I pretty much just got a really big paintbrush and a wall. Um, yeah. So, you know, it was, it's quite nice to, to just sit down with a sketchbook and a pencil. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it again, it's made me much more conscious of the visual tradition and the way in which you know myths are represented visually in a way that's maybe different to what you read in the books mm -hmm. yeah I, I 
think about Medusa a lot for that. And I do want to make sure we get onto like, no, no, Medusa is great. <laughs> but yeah, because Medusa is such a fascinating example for that because. In terms of textual sources, you don't really get a lot of description of her monstrosity, yeah. if any at all. Um, like, I think it's on the Shield of Heracles, they say it, it uses the word monstrous. Um, and now I don't read, unfortunately, original, you know, sources or anything. So it's all translation. But yeah. but yeah, they, it uses the word monstrous. But like Hesiod does not at all say anything about her appearance or the appearance of the Gorgons. And and but even the earliest um, like artistic de- depictions of her are not particularly monstrous. There's some snakes involved, but there's not a lot else. But then you shift right into the Gorgon with the tusks and the fangs and the tongue. And I find that so fascinating because it doesn't really mesh up with the textual depictions of Medusa at all. Yeah. I have the same sort of thing. Um, because I've been looking into the Minotaur and the labyrinth and things. And, and you're leading us into the right yes, conversation. I am. <laughs> I'll get there eventually. But, you know, it, it's a process. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's when you read the um, the sources that mention the Minotaur, mm-hmm. it's it's very much, there's very little description, you know, it's like like half man, half bull, or, you know, there's, there's bull bits, or, you know, it's it's very vague. But then mm-hmm. you, you see the visual sources, and they, they kind of have their own um, tradition. And, you know, the Minotaur tends to be very recognisable in terms of, well, essentially which bits are man and which bits are bull and you know mm-hmm. they, there's sort of a, a tradition there that you can trace across and uh, a pattern which is much more um, precise and consistent than you get in the, the written sources. Mm-hmm. So I'm so curious about that so you know obviously my I don't haven't looked at a lot of visual of Minotaur at all if 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 any I, I'm now thinking what I've seen um and meanwhile I'm always so interested in the theseus of it you know the like okay you know how how much of of his story are we getting from Athens and how much of it is Athenian propaganda and so I've always been extra interested in in that Cretan side of it and like yeah I mean it makes Crete look really bad and I just have to think like "Mm, you know how much of this is Athens trying to make Theseus into a hero that he obviously was not so Mm -hmm. I'm so interested to hear what the variations are on on the Minotaur oh yeah and you know I'm happy to do that and I'm also happy to do some Theseus bashing because that's all good too Um, please I mean I'm always down for Theseus bashing (laughs) but I would love to know if you know anything about that the Athenian of it like I've I keep meaning to look into whether there is, you know, scholarship or it were people talking about how much of it is based in Athenian propaganda and how much of it is like, you know, I mean, I don't know if any of it's from Crete. So I would love to hear anything about that. No, I mean, I'm, anyway. I mean, I, it's, it's actually one of those areas that I'm still researching. I'm still mm. trying to track down um, more visual sources because the feel that I get from a lot of the visual sources is that, um, the Greek ones, there is very much a sense of Theseus as the hero um, with the monster. You know, he's often dragging the Minotaur mm-hmm. along behind him or, you know, it, it's it's very much, you know, the, the conquest of Theseus uh, over the, 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 the monster. And, you know, um, but then you look at, at um, Etruscan sources mm. and then you get a different version. I mean, it's like there's the, a famous... Uh, vase painting of baby minotaur 
baby oh. minot baby oh my God. minotaur sitting on his mother's <gasps> knee and he is oh. so cute i can't <laughs> even tell you so <laughs> so yeah you know you've got baby minotaur and wow. this is like completely different to you know evil horrible monster that must be killed because it eats people little cute minotaur sitting on its mother's knee it's just adorable oh. so yeah i mean I, I i need to look into it more in particular looking at the relationship between the greek stuff and the etruscan stuff but um yeah i haven't got there yet no fair enough <laughs> I, but i'm so thrilled to here i'm in the baby minotaur now i'm like okay i'm gonna find a picture of that to post with this episode <laughs> you have to it's the best but it, that's so interesting that there are Etruscan visual representations because, I mean, I wouldn't have pegged that given how far the Etruscans would have been from Crete, you know, yeah. not necessarily from Greece, but from Crete. That's really interesting. But, you know, I, I think the whole role of Theseus in Athens and in Athenian law has, has very much kind of shifted the focus. You know, mm -hmm. we must see Theseus as the grand hero, but then you look elsewhere and you get a different sense um, mm -hmm. And I, I think it, it's it's really kind of um, it's really interesting and, and really, you know, a, a useful wedge to open up an area of Theseus bashing. Yeah. I mean, the man deserves it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the funniest thing I just find about him is that, you know, I think I think Minotaur aside, because in that sourcing, at least you get some sort of the idea that it you know it was monstrous you know it was eating people whatever but everything else about Theseus is like objectively bad yes. you know like you hear these descriptions and you're like I know this is meant to make him sound heroic but where is that heroism yeah. exactly right yeah and you know that that's actually one of the things that I think is really interesting about the labyrinth and the minotaur and all of that mm. because at that point in the myth, in all, you know, in most of the versions, you have a very simple story of, you know, Theseus is the hero. He volunteers. He goes to save his people. He he kills the monster and he emerges victorious and it's all wonderful. And then he goes off and does a whole load of awful things. You know, he dumps Ariadne. <laughs> he causes the death of his father. You know, it's it's like it's like that's the pinnacle of decent Theseus. He kills a monster, and then it's all downhill from there, like really, really fast. And it is the only good thing. Well, I, I would say, you know, quote unquote, good thing that he does. And again, it's based on what we're supposed to believe about mm. the Minotaur. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know. Because I, you know, always stand by his his being a, a full on serial killer well, on the yeah. way to Athens, like, and then yeah. even the the Cretan bull, which is of course the Minotaur's father, mm. <laughs> um, or the but then is the Marathonian bull. Even that he does for show, you know, he doesn't yeah. just like defeat this bull for the out of the goodness of his heart. No. And I just think it's so fascinating because the the Minotaur really is the only like quote unquote good thing he did, but. Was it good at all? <laughs> exactly. And that's what makes it really interesting because, you know, it, it. the more you know about Theseus, the more you start thinking, oh, poor Minotaur. 
you know, yeah. <laughs> poor little baby minotaur. You know, it's it's trapped inside the labyrinth and it can't get out. And you know, it's and then you start realizing the whole family connections. You know, the minotaur is the son of the queen. He's the brother of Ariadne, Ariadne who gives the thread to Theseus so that Theseus can go and kill her brother. It's not nice. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it gets really interesting. And I, I think really that that's kind of my way into the whole thing is just this sort of instinctive reaction against Theseus and, you know, mm. um, championing the um, evil, scary monster. Just, I think that's, I yeah. mean, that's right. Yeah. I also, I mean, the the conception of the, you know, so-called scary monster is one of my favorite stories. And and the reason I say I started this podcast, because I <laughs> read it one day and I was just like, why does no one tell this story comedically? Like so much of Greek myth, it's like, it's never, or I mean, not never now, obviously, but, you know, years ago, it was not presented often as comedic. Yeah. And it is objectively funny in oh, yeah. so many places where you're like, how are, how is somebody telling the story of how Pacify conceived the Minotaur without <laughs> comedy? <laughs> You know, my my <laughs> my problem with that is, you know, I I always I always wonder how that conversation went, <laughs> you know, between Pacify and Daedalus, who yeah. is having to build. <laughs> you you think you, how how did how did you broach that subject? Yep. No, I've theorized on that a lot <laughs> in a really in fun ways because. <laughs> You know, he had to at this point where we're to believe he was a prisoner, mm-hmm. um, you know, and yeah. and <laughs> but yeah, it's like, OK, so I have these urges. Um, they're not really my own. Like a God gave them to me. You know, that's its own <laughs> problem. Um, but I really need you to to create this thing for me. Like, I just need to make this happen. And I know you can do it and go for it. And then, of course, though, you have to imagine as much as that conversation was deeply awkward, Daedalus like took the recommendation and he went for it hard I know. <laughs> and i mean you know i've been a designer of chess sets you know i know how detailed you have to be to do the blueprints for a model or something and yeah i, I know just i have trouble with the process <laughs> just you know yeah, it, it's a difficult one. Um, <laughs> but I actually, you know, Daedalus is one of those characters that I just, I, I really do find fascinating because mm-hmm. he pops up all over the place doing various things. You know, it's like anybody needs a genius craftsman. Here you go. Here's Daedalus. It's like, you know, every time you need a prophet, you can just pull in Tiresias. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, they they just pop up randomly in various different stories. And it's timeline be damned. Yeah. It's like recurring characters in a TV show. So, you know, it's I I think Daedalus is is fascinating um, because he gets roped into so much stuff. You know, there's that there's the labyrinth. There's um, there's his own story of the wings. But, you know, it, it. it has all sorts of complications. So you read Ovid and you've got the story of, of Perdix and, you know, how mm-hmm. um, Daedalus was really a, maybe a bit of a creep, actually. And, well, that's not really surprising since, you know, most people are in 
Greek myth. But, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you've got... He, and then you, you come up with, with weird and random little references in very strange places. Like there's a bit in Plato's Mino where um, Socrates is talking to this this um, slightly dim country boy called Mino and he's, he's winding him up a little bit and, and he's talking about the difference between knowledge and true opinion. And he's, he's trying to get Mino to, um, well, <laughs> he's doing his usual thing and being really annoying. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and he says the difference between um, knowledge and true opinion is it, it's like Daedalus's statues. Like, you don't have any of those up in Thessaly, do you, Mino? And Mino's like, no, what? And you say, oh, yeah, we have these statues. And um, they were made by Daedalus. And, and, you know, if you don't chain them down, they just walk off. And so, you know, true opinion is like that. You know, if you don't if you don't pin it down with facts, it just it just wanders off. It's it's just like you know these walking statues that we have here in Athens. <laughs> you know, Daedalus is like this this weird kind of movable punchline of of random jokes that just pops up in the middle of philosophical texts. It's very strange. It just that. I've not read a lot of Plato. Thankfully, I would say I'm fine with it. Yeah. Um, but it just makes me think of like a story like that, it, and and then also you know connecting it to the way people believe Atlantis based on Plato's <laughs> nonsense is I'm just like he clearly wasn't serious in everything he wrote. Like why why do you believe that one? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> That one is endlessly fascinating. Yes. Oh, I, I'm never over it. It's like my one of my bigger things these days. It's like, how did this become what it has become? But how did so? How did you get deeper into the? Oh, I wasn't even doing this on purpose, but I'm going to do it again as if go I was. On, go on. How did how did you get deeper into the labyrinth? Oh, that was with all of, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I do my best. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, yeah. Well. Okay. It's complicated. Are you up for a complicated story? Please. Yeah, it, it goes on a bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, the labyrinth does. Yeah, well, that's the thing, and you know, it is confusing and and complex, and you can get lost in it, which is pretty much you know what I do when I start talking. <laughs> um, so this Me could go. Too. This could go anywhere. <laughs> so I was doing all this stuff teaching myth. To um, I, I teach I teach adults I teach distance learners who come to uh, education maybe late um, so I, I teach frankly people who are just really really enthusiastic. Oh, that's yeah, that's yeah, lovely. It's amazing. My my students are just the best. They're they're fabulous. I, I learn so much from them, and they're great fun because they want to do stuff and they want to know stuff, and you know it's it's great. So I was, I was doing that and then I was going through stuff at, um, at home because my little boy was diagnosed with autism and I was looking at his behavior and I was kind of thinking, yeah, I know he's diagnosed with autism, but he seems kind of normal to me. And then, you know, eventually I kind of, I twigged that maybe that meant that I was autistic as well. So... Mm. <laughs> It took me a while. It took me a while to work that one out, but I got there in the end. And so I went through the diagnostic process and got diagnosed and they pretty much said, well, yes, did you not notice? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, after I picked myself up after that one and thought, yeah, 
I'm really not as smart as I thought I was. I got into that and I started reading lots about it because that's what I do and, um, you know, finding out all sorts of things. And honestly, um, social media is just the best for finding out stuff. You know, it's far better than all the the books and training courses and everything out there because people just Mm. tell it like it is. And their own experiences. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's mind boggling. I, mm. I just to I, I recently discovered that obviously I have ADHD and just had never <laughs> realized it. And like you just by reading everyone's constant talking about it, and I'm like, oh, oh penny dropping. That's, yeah, that's why I have so much trouble doing like anything without a hard and fast deadline. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you know. So- Social media is amazing. Yeah, I went through all of that. And, you know, it was a learning process. And, you know, so it's doing that and going through that and learning things about that. And I was teaching the myth and doing that. And then then I, I, I stumbled across this group called Acclaim. And there are a group of scholars who uh, around the world who are doing things to do with autism and classical myth. And yeah, it's really interesting stuff. And it was like, you know, it was like there in front of me, like a neon sign going, notice me, notice me. So I I kind of said to them, you know, can, can I, can I join? And I think they would probably have been begging if they hadn't said yes, Um, but they did. So, you know, I I joined them and started following what they were doing. And, you know, they, they, they do lots of really interesting stuff. There's different projects going on in different countries and, uh, Susan DC at Roehampton in the UK, she's doing a thing uh, where she works with kids using an image uh, of the choice of Heracles. And she, she gives the kids these, this image and she explains it and she gets them to talk through the different choices and imagine themselves in different positions and you know Mm. it's a way of thinking through things which is kind of separate from the real world and it it sort of takes the the edge off it you know the 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 fear that comes with real world situations if you struggle with those it's a way of making it remote but still working through the the problems So that was really interesting. And then um, there's this other project based in Israel where they do essentially the same sort of thing, but using lots of different stories of heroes. So Perseus and Heracles and um, Theseus and, you know, the Minotaur and all of that. And it's working through um, ideas around fear and choices and, you know, dealing with situations where you're lost or you don't know what to do or it, it's it's a lot to do with processing emotions, which mm. for a lot of autistic kids is a real roller coaster of, you know, how do you learn to deal with these things? And so they're using myth to to do that. And I thought, wow, this is just... This is just amazing stuff. And at the same time, I was reading novels because I was doing that thing where you think, you know, I've got to read something that's not classics to mm-hmm. get my head in a healthier space because, you know, I'm starting to to see things when I go to sleep and it's not good. <laughs> um <laughs> Oh, it sounds like my life. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I don't know. No, read something different. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down. I can read novels. I'm just, you know, healthier headspace. Um, so I was reading this novel called Piranesi by Susanna Clarke. 
And it's, it's nothing to do with classics. It's like a fantasy sort of um, novel. And it, it the main character, Piranesi, he is in a world which is kind of, is very surreal. It's like loads and loads of intersecting hallways with statues in them. And sometimes they flood and he's on his own and he's got a notebook. And he writes things in his notebook and he goes on wonders and he makes charts and he does like tide charts and he figures out the migration of the birds and he writes about all the statues that he comes across. And, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of having a whale of a time, but he's on his own. He doesn't know where he comes from. There's a mysterious man who keeps popping up and he doesn't know where he comes from either, but he sort of isn't really bothered. And he's, he's just kind of, you know, he's in this really strange situation. But it's all good because he's making friends with the statues. And sometimes he has a chat with the birds. And it's, it's just such a nice novel. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, you know, if I ended up in a world like that, I would probably do the same thing. I'd probably have a notebook. I'd be wandering around. I'd be talking to the birds. I'd be making friends with them. I'd be doing all of that. And, you know, so I'm reading that and I'm thinking, yeah, but there's something really weird about this. There's something that I'm missing. I, I'm, I'm just, there's a connection there that's driving me mad and I just don't know what it is. And then I read an interview um, where Susanna Clark said that one of her inspirations um, was, well, C.S. Lewis and also a story by the Argentinian writer Borges. And the story by Borges is called The House of Asterion. And I thought, there's something familiar about that. There's something, <laughs> there's, there's something niggling at me there. So I, I, I got the, the book. I got the book in translation because, you know, um, <laughs> my language is <laughs> limited. And it's only like a three-page story. And it's about this character called Asterion who is in this house... And the house is um, loads of intersecting hallways. And um, he doesn't go out of his house because people look at him funny. And he's scared of them because they have really strange flat faces. And he doesn't really like to be looked at. And so he likes to stay in his house. And he likes the way the hallways all connect. And he's very proud of the fact that his house doesn't have any furniture in it. And so it's like clues being dropped all the way through the story about what's actually going on. And, yeah. you know, sometimes people come to visit him and, you know, they're, they're, um, he runs to meet them and then they end up on the ground. And, you know, it, it's it's all very, you know, it's it's just three pages, but it's like a, a process of, of figuring out what it is that, that's happening. And um, then, of course, you know, there are other clues like he's the son of a queen and he's all alone and um, and he's he's expecting his redeemer to come along someday and save him. And then at the very end, there's just a comment and it, it says, you know, Theseus said to Ariadne, the Minotaur didn't even put up a fight. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. It's... Yeah, I, I was, I may have cried a bit. Um, yeah, like chills just now and yeah. all you've done is told me, so I'm with you. Oh, it's terrible. But, you know, it's, 
but the description of him running through his his labyrinth and he's so happy and he's jumping out from around corners and he's he's playing games with himself and he's imagining the other Asterion and he's imagining a little chat with him and saying, I will show you this pool and I will show you what is around this corner and sometimes I will get it wrong and we will laugh together. And it's just, oh, and so, <laughs> so I read that after I read Piranesi and I thought, you know, this is what's bothering me about the identification with autistic people and heroes. It's very empowering and it's it's great to suggest that, you know, there's there's this this position that they can be in, which is a position of strength where, you know, they can influence things and change things. But I thought, you know, for myself as an autistic person, I'm so drawn to the monster. I'm drawn mm. to the minotaur in this in this labyrinth who is pottering around all by himself and having a great time doing it. And, you know, is is kind of looked at in a strange way by the rest of the world. And I thought, you know, once you get into that, there's a lot of other connections that you can draw out. And I think it comes back to this whole thing that I was talking about with the, the baby minotaur in mm. the, the Etruscan pottery, you know, this sense that the myth in its ancient forms is kind of flippable. You know, you've got the minotaur, big, scary, nasty monster, Theseus, great hero. But then you've got the flip side of, you know, the monster is actually really um, a child of a family. The family lock him up. They betray him. They cause his death. They keep him confined. So he has to kill people to survive. It's, you know, there's, there's a whole other way of looking at it that exists in the ancient sources. And once you start doing that, I think it, that's where it gets really interesting because there's so many other elements to um, to draw out of it. Sorry, I'm just rambling on. No, <laughs> this is my favorite thing about the conversation episodes is when I can get people to just ramble on like oh, that. That's so right, then. <laughs> it, it's truly like it's when I just sit here with my big smile and like, oh my gosh, I love all of this. <laughs> no, and I'm just sort of taking it all in and. I think that's been become one of my favorite things to do is to look at things from the other side. Granted, not all things like I'm, you know, I'm not going to take a story of Theseus and try to like make him <laughs> seem good, but that's not really the other side of anything. But I just keep, you know, as you talk about this more and more and and seeing that other, just the flipping of it is I, I, I hear Medusa's story in my head. Exactly. Right? It's exactly the yeah. same where it's like we have been sort of conditioned to see this version of the story where it is a heroic act to kill the monster because of all of these obvious things that mon not even all of these obvious things because of the obvious fact that monsters must be killed and no other real yeah. obvious anything exactly. and so if you just yeah you take it on its head and it's like well what if it's just a odd creature yeah. <laughs> what if it's just like not a hundred percent quote-unquote normal and yeah. that's all that makes it a monster and i mean granted you know top half bull is a little bit monstrous but not Fair in like any kind of like yeah and same with you know snakes for hair turns people to stone sure yeah a little bit monstrous True. does that mean they deserve to be killed no what proof do we have that they deserve to be killed exactly. i don't know and yeah you know i, th I think there's, there's lots of things about that that i find really interesting you know this this notion of 
perceiving something as a monster because it is maybe a hybrid or a creature that's being put in a particular position. It's like names. I mean, I'm talking about Borges's House of Asterion, and it, it did take me a while. I mean, I'm supposed to know myth, but it took me a while to place the name Asterion. And, you know, that's the name that's given in some of the, the ancient sources. Um, mm-hmm. Borges quotes... It means like starry-eyed or something, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. Borges yeah, quotes beautiful. Apollodorus, who, who mentions that the Minotaur's name is Asterion. And it's a lovely name. I mean, it's something to do with the stars. You know, some people say, you know, starry, or some people translate as ruler of the stars or something. Mm. Whatever the case, it's just a nice name. It's mm-hmm. It's unrelated to his so-called monstrosity. It's unrelated to anything except, yeah, the stars. It is a beautiful name and i think it's sometimes asterion asterius like it's yeah there's very regardless yeah it's it's starry it's just it's just a nice name it's just so nice and then you have the fact that asterion is called the minotaur which is the bull of minos Mm -hmm. you know king minos traps him in the labyrinth which is custom built to you know have this monster at its center and he makes him the minotaur Mm -hmm. well he also makes the mistakes that lead to pacify like unwillingly conceiving it like it's all minos's fault he is the bad guy in all of it oh it's horrible this is it your moment This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity, and it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, you, you've got this notion of, of names and naming and what it means to have a sort of monster name. And, you know, when I'm looking into all of this stuff to do with autism, it's really interesting to see how that's played out in the real world and how all this this um, concern with naming and labels and stuff gets really, really upsetting to a lot of people you know there are big issues here and they matter and it really matters the way that people perceive you I mean there's there's a big issue at the moment around person first language you know the idea of calling somebody who's autistic person with autism now that's been something that that people have been trained to do for a very long time it, it it's in lots and lots of training literature about how to deal with neurodivergent people and the big issue is the fact that autistic people hate it because mm. there is a suggestion that if you are a person with autism you are a person and the autism is like a bolt on it's like mm. a it's like a problem that you've got that you could maybe be separated from and then you'd mm. be left with the person and the autistic community is very much like no this is how we're born this shapes everything about us it's not detachable and also we don't have a problem being called it it's mm-hmm. our name, it's our description, it's who we are, so stop treating it like a bad word. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's all these sensitivities around, you know, what you call somebody. And it, it really does relate very much to the notion of monstering. And there's, mm. there's, a, there's a book, I don't know if you've come across it, it's a really strange book. It's called uh, Bull by David Elliott hmm. and it's a it's poetry but it's a it's a novel and it's it's written in different characters and so it and all the different characters have different styles um I think you would like it it's very sweary um nope. well I mean that's <laughs> you've sold me <laughs> it is really it it's really powerful and it's got all the characters from the myth it's got Ariadne it's got Asterion, who is called Asterion, all the way through. Mm. It's got Poseidon. Poseidon's involved. Poseidon's like giving a running commentary. Uh, it's mm. got Minos, it's got Daedalus, and they each get kind of speaking parts, and they all speak in different types of poetry. And Poseidon is horrible. I mean, he's... I was going to ask. Yeah, he's really, <laughs> Good, so it's really accurate. Awful. Yeah, and so the whole thing is to do with Ariane is going to save Asterion. Minos mm. is locking him up. 
Ariane is going to rescue him. She's the good sister, you know, she she's going to help him out. And he's in the labyrinth and he's talking and he's going slightly mad because he's locked up all alone in the dark. And so she's trying to talk to him through the walls and tell him that everything's going to be okay. And then Theseus comes along. And Theseus is a right scumbag. He is absolutely horrible. So he comes along. Yeah. He comes (laughs) along and he messes with Ariadne's head. And um, he tricks her into thinking that he's going to go into the labyrinth and he's going to rescue her brother, Asterion. And he's going to bring Asterion out and the three of them are going to be together. And you hear from Theseus in his own voice and he is (sighs) not doing that. Um, He has no intention of doing that. He has no intention of sticking around with Ariadne. You know, he's, yeah, he's a complete villain from start to finish. And so um, he goes into the labyrinth and Asterion thinks it's his sister. And so Theseus kills Asterion and um, convinces Ariadne that, you know, her brother was just too far gone, too crazy Um, and there's, there's this whole thing about Asterion's final words and uh, about what it means to him to be made into the Minotaur and have his name taken away from him. Mm. And, oh, it's it's so sad. (laughs) It's so sad. Um, (laughs) yeah, see, I'm, I'm really bringing the, the, the tone down here, aren't I? No, I, I, but... (laughs) But if we laugh through it, it's fine. No, <laughs> yeah. I, I do. I mean, still, though, I think that's the whole that's uh, that's the point of this episode, you know, is like yeah. just a stereo. And I think that is so important. And I, yeah. I'm just very glad we're looking at him this way. Well, exactly. You know, we are we are redeeming for a stereo and being nice about him. Um, yeah. And that matters. But yeah, so, you know, I, I was I was doing all that. And then it got me into other issues to do with all of this. That novel, Bull, it's unusual because Asterion actually speaks. In most representations, you don't actually hear from the Minotaur. You don't hear Mm -hmm. from Asterion. And the reason why you don't is because he's half bull, half man, and his head is the head of a bull. He can't talk. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, when you when you start comparing kind of other hybrid monsters like, you know, the centaurs, you yeah. know, the centaurs talk all the time. And, you know, they give people lessons because I mean, just the one, the others are awful, well, okay, but they can still true. talk. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> there, there is there is this kind of representation, this self-representation that they can do because mm-hmm. they have the top half of men. And so they can communicate, whereas Asterion is, you know, put in a, a situation where communication isn't really feasible mm-hmm. because of the sort of monster that he is. And, you know, that that kind of that fits very well into all sorts of debates to do with autism and the autistic community, who gets to speak and, Mm. you know, also what it means to be without a voice because so many autistic people, they don't talk. Um, And, you know, I've been through things like that myself. Uh, My son didn't speak for years and years. And, you know, this, this idea 
of not having a voice and what happens when you don't have a voice and how people talk over you and turn you into something that you don't want to be is is a really big deal and mm-hmm. you know it's it's very kind of interesting to to get into it um i mean it, it's things like there there is a novel that came out a few years ago called the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime i don't know mm-hmm. if you've heard of it yeah i've read it yeah, yeah. and you know it, it's it's about an autistic boy and it was a huge hit massively huge hit you know worldwide turned into a stage show all of that you know massive big hype and the author mark haddon has been asked numerous times to you know join various autism representation groups and all sorts and he's always said no and the reason he said no is because he didn't do any research into autism before he wrote the book he Mm. just wrote it um he isn't autistic himself he doesn't have family members who are autistic it was not a personal thing he just wrote the book and he didn't even at any point claim that this child was autistic. That mm. was something the publisher put on the back of the book. Mm. And he didn't have any control over it. So he didn't mean this to be a big, you know, representation of what it's like to be autistic. Mm-hmm. He was just trying to write a good novel. Mm-hmm. And it turned into this big thing of, oh, yes, well, you know, this is this is speaking for autistic people and, you know, and it was never supposed to be like that. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that, you know, that often there's no control over who's doing the speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when you start looking at issues of, of voice and voicelessness, I actually, I think, I think Greek myth is an amazing way to explore that in all sorts of ways. You know, once you start thinking about characters who don't have a voice or who have a voice taken away from them by somebody else, you know, there's a list a mile long. That's so true. I th- I've always found, I'm just fascinated to hear all this or these connections to Asteria in that way, because I have always found it really interesting that he is the only person hybrid who is top half animal and therefore has character or they've, he's presented as if he has characteristics that are purely animal that he is purely monstrous in a way that the centaurs satyrs all of that are not yeah and that's because of his top half bull and that is so interesting to look at it sort of twisting it on that of it's not that makes him monstrous it just takes away his voice in a way that is certainly very yeah that's powerful yeah i mean it's it's interesting that so many monsters that you come across in um in myth they do have this ability to communicate. Mm-hmm. You know, they can talk back. They can put forward their point of view. Um, and you see that in all sorts of different contexts, but you very rarely see it with the Minotaur. And mm-hmm. it it is it is quite strange because there are variants. Um, all through history, there's this variants of how the Minotaur is represented, how mm-hmm. this half bull, half man thing is worked out. I mean, there's a... There's an amazing illustration by William Blake. Um, You know, I mean, William Blake came up with some fairly crazy illustrations, but his Minotaur is just the best. It's got, like, legs like a centaur, but then a torso like a man, but then a head like a... I would like to say a bull, but honestly, it's like no bull I've ever seen. It is the weirdest 
thing ever. And, you know, it makes me laugh every time because it's just, you know, it doesn't resemble anything. You would never guess that it was a minotaur. It was just, yeah, it's very weird. I'm looking it up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you really should. It's so funny. I love it. Oh, my. Yes. Look at that. I don't see why I've not seen this before. <laughs> it looks like the the head looks like the beast from Beauty and the Beast. Oh yes, that must be why but nothing I like else it. about it does. Yeah, <laughs> nothing else about it does. That is because it's got it is like a centaur in the way it's like full bottom half animal, yeah. like with six legs. Yeah, interesting. I, I don't really know how you read any of the ancient sources or look at any mm. of the pictures and come up with that. No. No, not at all. There's not a logical progression there. That's so interesting. Yeah. And I, I don't know why, but throughout our conversation, I've been picturing. Do you know the um the medieval? Uh, I don't know who did it or what the. It just looks very medieval. But the Theseus and the Minotaur in the labyrinth. Um. Oh, the the like a black and like white po- illustration. I don't know if it's black and white, but he's like poking his head around the corner. Oh, and... the Burn Jones one. Oh, with the little, little cute minotaur peeping around the corner. I, think... I love Yeah, that. and like Theseus looks like deeply, like <laughs> not of the right period at all. Oh, uh, yeah. It's I mean, a he, weird he's, little... he looks very elegant in his, his pretty yeah. little outfit. And there's just yeah. the minotaur and it's got his little hands just poking yeah. around the corner. And it's like, hello. Oh, I love that. That is one of yeah. the best illustrations. Yeah, I, I, I really, because I, I think he did it as like a, a tile design. Oh. And, you know, someday I just want to make that into tiles and do like my bathroom yeah. with it and just have little minotaur peeking around the wall. Around. That'd be so precious. Yeah. Oh, and Damn I'm going to just, I'll say it so that I make sure to say it clear to, clearly to my listeners, but I'm going to make, I'm going to, um, put all of these images on Instagram so people can see what we're talking about because we're talking about a lot of visual stuff here. Because I also was, as soon as I was looking up the William Blake one, I found that gorgeous one. um, I think it said it was by Watts of the Minotaur just looking out over the sea. um, It's, yeah, that one is just touching. That is so sad. And, you know, Mm -hmm. um, I, (laughs) I read something, somebody said on Twitter a while back they said, yeah, he's looking out to sea. And, you know, maybe it's something to do with the fact that the Daedalus and Icarus story is happening at the same time. Oh, and maybe Asterion yeah. knew Icarus. And maybe he's watching him fly out to sea. And, oh, no, I can't cope. Oh, yeah. yeah. Pals. I mean, both imprisoned by Minos. Yeah. Oh. yeah, probably similar ages. He's a yeah. rotten guy. Yeah. He really was. Well, and then you take in, and I think it's primarily in Ovid, but you take in the preceding story of Scylla. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. I yeah, know. Minos is a real shit. Oh, yeah. We really don't like Minos. No. Um, no. Yeah, but add him to the list. Yeah. Oh my gosh. He's, yeah, alongside Theseus, man. Yeah. Honestly. These guys. You see, I'm, I'm, I have issues with the whole story because you got Minos and Theseus who, you know, obviously we don't like, but I'm also having trouble with some of the women. Mm. Ariadne bothers me. Um, you know, it granted, you know, she, she gets hard done by. When it comes to Theseus, you know, she really does. She gets taken in and dumped on an island. That's pretty bad. Um, but, you know, she did do the whole thread thing to send Theseus to to kill her brother and, you know, essentially um, betrayed her family and her kingdom and all of that. So mm-hmm. she's a bit, you know, morally ambiguous. 
Um, yeah. I've always taken her to be like naive, not that it excuses it, but yeah. just that she's sort of, I mean, for one, she's been affected by her father. Yeah. You have to think about that. Mm-hmm. And then just the naivety and like the, you know, her wanting to escape her father as well and thinking Theseus is the obvious option. Mm-hmm. The idea of like that connecting with wanting to have her brother murdered is, of course, you yeah. know, it doesn't excuse yeah. any of it. You see, I, but I, it's this is where I struggle. Yeah, because I'm mm-hmm. I'm on the Minotaur's side. So, you know, I'm really I'm, I'm trying to fight its corner here. But um, but yeah, when it comes to Ariadne, I think, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of the overriding impression that you get and I also started reading um uh have you read Liz Gloyne's tracking classical monsters in popular culture no I'm gonna write it down you have got to read it it's um it's fabulous so I was reading that and there's a there's a Mm -hmm. chapter on the Minotaur and actually she talks about one of the the novels that I came across when I was um reading up which is a novel by Barbara Vine, also known as Ruth Rendell. Um, mm, it, it's mm-hmm. a sort of mystery, thriller, English country house thing. And it's about a character, John, who is, uh, his family say that he's schizophrenic and, and dangerous. And uh, this is set in the 1960s. And so a nurse, mm. uh, a, a Swedish girl, um, she comes to look after him. And she gradually starts to realize that actually there's nothing much wrong with him. He just seems to be autistic and very, very routine driven, but he's being heavily medicated by his family. And mm. all he really wants to do is get back to his labyrinth, which is this is this kind of this library in the middle of the house, which is locked up. And when she gets the key and goes in, it's set up like a labyrinth with windy pathways of bookshelves and stuff. And, you know, if he gets the chance to go in it, he dives straight into the middle of this labyrinth and just surrounds himself with all these equations and complex things. Um, mm. And, you know, he, he, he wants to be in his labyrinth. He wants to be the Minotaur. But his family actually cast him as a monster and they mm. they they build up this idea that he's dangerous and he's violent and he does things if he's off his medication. And then one of his sisters ends up murdered and they try to pin it on him. But of course, it's not mm. him who did it. And so it, it it's really interesting, the fact that the character of the Minotaur is being used as, you know, a sort of stand in for um, an autistic person. And it, it, mm-hmm. it's all to do with this idea that, you know, you can consciously monster somebody. You can turn them into a monster mm-hmm. for a particular agenda. And, you know, it, it's it's a very, it's it's actually quite a strange book. You know, the the, the whole thing about the labyrinth and the, the books and the, the library, none of it seems to have anything to do with the plot. Um, it's like, it's, yeah, it's like completely detachable. You know, you could take it out and you still have the same book. But it's like, yeah, that's the best bit. So, you know, you've got to leave it in. No relevance to anything, but who cares? Um, <laughs> She's but, a big enough author; she yeah. can do whatever she wanted. <laughs> but you know, there's there's a there's a long tradition of associating autistic people with labyrinths and minotaurs and stuff. Mm-hmm. If you look up, you know, autism support or whatever, you'll see loads of images of labyrinths and mazes. Mm. Um, it's very very standard thing, you know. Sometimes. The labyrinth is seen as like the social world or, you know, navigating the world of of support systems or whatever. It's it's like 
it stands for confusion and being stuck and also for needing help and needing guidance. Mm. And, you know, you need the thread to lead you out and all of this. So it's very standard to see that as an image. And, you know, there's even been research done on what happens if you put autistic people in an actual maze. What happens? Oh, dear. Yeah, it turns out we are actually quite good at it. But I have my doubts. <laughs> I have my doubts about the ethics of that. There's something that yeah. Yeah, doesn't sit quite right there. But yeah. No, I would agree. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's lots of that, but there there's um there's a a book that I came across um called The Boy in the Labyrinth, and it, it's mm. a it's a poetry book by a poet called Oliver de la Passe, and it's um he has two sons who are both autistic, and it's really a book of poetry about how he tried to understand what they were thinking and tried to access their perspective even though the way in which people talked about them and the way in which people asked questions didn't seem to connect with what he understood from from their responses to things and it's mm. it's brilliant it's so kind of thoughtful and and powerful and he sees the boy in the labyrinth as being kind of um representative of his his sons you know they they're essentially kind of stuck and 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 cut off and but they experience things really powerfully. They experience the environments, the sounds, the smells, everything around them. And the Minotaur is there as well. And the Minotaur is sometimes scary, but also sometimes comforting. And so it's like the Minotaur is in there and it's part of the labyrinth. And there's mm-hmm. no Theseus and there's no Ariadne and there's no thread. It's just this idea of being in there with something else and trying to relate and it's it's really interesting to see the way that people have drawn on this idea of the labyrinth and the minotaur to think about and think around questions of autism and neurodiversity and what it means to think differently. Mm-hmm. But that's just so fascinating. And so I don't know if you want if you want to keep if you have more examples or, or just want to keep talking about the labyrinth and, and all of that, or if this is a perfect way to lead into um, the Asterian project, yeah, I would love for you to talk about that. No, Great. That would so, be brilliant. Um, yeah. If you don't mind me plugging it. Um, please, please. I, it was always the plan, but I feel like this is yeah. the perfect time. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that that's the thing, you know, I, I got interested in this and I, I started reading this story and, and seeing the way that it connected on so many levels to the sort of things that I was reading about autism and what it meant to be different in a world that wasn't really set up to accommodate those sort of differences. Mm-hmm. And I started to think, you know, that there's there's not much out there to help people in my situation. I'm learning things. I'm learning things as I go along. These are not things that I knew. These are things that I'm having to learn. I'm learning them mostly from social media and I'm learning them from other people who are going through these things. But the only reason that I know about them is because I've found myself in a situation where I've had to learn things. Mm-hmm. And so I got thinking about, you know, maybe there's a way of making those resources, that information, making it accessible to people in classics, you know, to people who are working with autistic students or to people who are autistic and, and are in classics and are struggling 
And then I thought, well, yeah, but it's not just autism. It's all different sorts of neurodiversity. It's ADHD, it's OCD, it's bipolar. It's all the different things. Mm -hmm. I don't know much about them. And I should. I've been a teacher for years. I know how to help people who are going through particular problems. But when it comes to what words do you use to talk about them? You know, what resources are there out there to help? I don't know these things. And I think maybe most people don't. So Mm -hmm. I got thinking about, you know, how could I bring all this together and kind of package it up? And then I I thought, well, yeah, I, I could set up an initiative to kind of connect these things, to connect classics and neurodiversity and just, you know, host resources of all different types so that if somebody needs something if they need help if they need information they don't have to go trawling social media for two years to find out the answers they can actually just go to a site and find the information that they need Mm -hmm. and so I thought well what 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 should I call it and then obviously I thought well I have to call it a stereon don't I I mean it's just it's hitting me over the head with its obviousness um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you know it makes it makes me happy to do something nice for him so yeah i've i've called my neurodiversity initiative asterion and i've been talking to other people i've been talking to autistic people i've been talking to people with ocd and adhd and dyslexia and all sorts of different differences and learning more about it and i've been realizing just how many people out there in classics have some form of difference different way of seeing the world a different way of processing things one of these days i'd love to find out whether classics actually does attract people who are neurodivergent because I think it does I mean there are there are different disciplines that really do like you find lots of autistic people in uh technology Hmm. because you know they're 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 quite drawn to the precision and the environment and the the uh, well the technical side of things but I think there's something about classics that draws people in as well So, Mm -hmm. well, I think it draws in a lot of weirdos and I think a lot of neurodivergent people become (laughs) weirdos or are made or born weirdos. I mean, I certainly count myself amongst them. Proud weirdos. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think it does. I I think Mm -hmm. it, it, I think judging by the sorts of conversations that I've had since I started talking about this, I think there are a lot of us out there. And I think a lot of us are getting diagnosed when we're older. Um, I think there are a lot of people out there who are not diagnosed and possibly never will be, mm-hmm. but they get it. And, you know, if they were ever put in a situation where they had to go through the assessment, then, you know, you'd probably find out. But I think these traits that we see in ourselves are perhaps a lot more common than we tend to realize. Mm-hmm. And so what I want to do is I want to get people... I want to get people writing for Asterion. I want to get people who are in different situations uh, writing about their experiences, writing about how they've dealt with particular issues and classics and, you know, what tips can they give to people like them? You know, what environments have been supportive to them and what areas have they needed more help in? Um, You know, things like um, language learning. 
you know mm. how 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 is that affected by neurodivergence how do people with different ways of thinking experience language learning in a different way um the same thing to do with myth you know there's there's a lot being written about the fact that um autistic girls and also girls with ADHD are drawn to fantasy literature and mm. to myth and you know that that's a, a way that they find an area of comfort um often mm. when they're growing up so um I think you know that's a yeah that's describing a, my life a little bit <laughs> no, that, that's, that's exactly it and you know it's it once you start reading about it, you start thinking oh yeah 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 I can mm-hmm. I can see that um mm-hmm. <laughs> so essentially I'm trying to bring people together people like you and me and all the other people out there who go through life a little bit differently and mm-hmm. um it really one of the things I want to do is just represent us and get us out there and get us saying, look, yeah, you can do this. You know, if you have autism, you can become a lecturer in classics. If you have ADHD, you can become a brilliantly successful podcaster. <laughs> it's, you know, it's representation. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's it's funny you say that too, because so I... I mean, I, I can only assume I've, I've had ADHD my whole life, but it has never been an issue that like it's it's never been something I've noticed or had issues with until becoming full time in the podcast, mm-hmm. which is what triggered it to go, oh, if you don't have a set time in which to do things, the things will not get done. You will work all day long, nonstop, yeah. constantly. But the things you need to get done are the, not the things you will do. And so it's just like, you know, it's been going on a year now where I've been full time and my brain, it's just had me, I've been forced to realize that my brain absolutely doesn't work the thing, the way I thought it did. Like, you know, I have all these abilities to do these things, but without timelines and with like all the different things have just been forced upon me, but it's a hundred percent because of the podcast and never once did I have a problem, but I was always into fantasy and mythology. So I've got your connection there too. I'm like, oh, my like obsession with mythology and Lord of the Rings from a very young age are making a little bit of sense. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's, yeah, that was me as well. (laughs) But it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it, it's seen as a, a disability and, and often it is but it's very much the interface between what you do and the world around you and Mm. you know if the world around you changes if your environment changes if your working circumstances change and you have to map your way of dealing with things onto that and maybe it doesn't work so well that's where you run into the problems Mm -hmm. and I think that's where people like us can be of use to somebody else because once you've worked through that you know what works you have tips and tricks and you know you see the signs of something going wrong and you know what to do about it and I think we're all out there and we're all reinventing the wheel by ourselves all the time and it shouldn't have to be like that we should be Mm -hmm. able to help each other and just say yeah I did that I've been through that it was horrible, but I found a way through it and I made it work. And I think, you know, that that's where an organization like Asterion could be useful. Just saying, mm-hmm. you know, when you think about the Minotaur, 
the Minotaur, unlike the Centaurs, is not a race. It's just a one. Mm. It's mm-hmm. one person it's one. all it's by one. himself. He's the only one. There will never be another one. And he's doing all of these things in in a unique way because there's just one of him. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe what I want to do with the Asterion project is say, it's not just one. It's not just you on your own. There are other people out there who are experiencing exactly the same things and they can tell you about it. And maybe you won't feel like you're just a, a lone monster out there trying to make your way through a labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so, I mean, valiant project. That's so lovely. Thank it's you. just, yeah. I feel like I, it, just even though you're talking about like, oh, got through it and have tips and tricks. And I'm like, oh, I want those tips and tricks. Yes. Still, I'm not, I'm not through it. No. I'm like hanging on by the skin of my teeth and deadlines well, and then otherwise the, just. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the point. That's what we need. Yeah. We need the person who's been through it and says, mm-hmm. you know, this is what I can tell you. Or, you know, you're the person who's been through asking the questions and saying, what's wrong? Why can't I do this? Why can't I process this? Why can't I keep up? What's gone wrong? And you've worked through it and you've come up with an answer. There are people who are way further behind that, who are casting around for that answer and saying, I don't Mm. know why I can't do this. I don't know why I could do things before and I can't do them now. Is there something wrong with me? And you're the person there who can say, no, there isn't something wrong with you. You're just like me, this wildly successful podcaster. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, Can you tell I have trouble with people saying I'm wildly successful? (laughs) Oh, come on. We have to say that. We're on your show. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, we're we're all making it up as we go along. We're all trying to do our best. We're all floundering and trying to pull ourselves out of holes all the time because the Mm. world is not set up to help us. And a lot of the help comes from people who don't actually know because they haven't been through it. And Mm. so hopefully what I want out of Asterion is for it to be mainly led by neurodivergent classicists people Mm -hmm. like us who can actually say to somebody it's all right you know this is how things go and there is a route out of it and there is a way to do things and have you tried this and you know maybe maybe it will be of help and maybe it won't feel quite so much like we're all stuck in a labyrinth I think that is such an important thing and now I'm you know, as much as I definitely don't feel like I have solved my problem, I have recognized my problem. Yes. But no, I mean, that's the thing. It's people at different stages linked to classics in different ways who can just, you know, represent, um, well, represent the the issues and also the brilliance. I mean, that's the thing that I think people don't give us enough credit for is the fact that we think differently and that can be a really good thing it can be a really hard thing but it can be a really good thing because we do stuff we see we see barriers all the time weird things that other people don't think are barriers are like massive barriers to us and it can take us days to get over them and we can need help and we can need all sorts but I think that maybe we don't see the barriers that other people see and so Mm. we do stuff like you set up your podcast. And I look at the Minotaur and think, 
yeah, I'm going to set up a neurodiversity initiative. You know, our brains don't work in the same way that um, that everyone else's do. do. Mm-hmm. And I think I think of this in terms of the walls of the labyrinth moving. I mean, we can move them in ways that that maybe other people can't. Um, I, I have this this wonderful thing that I'm going to do over the holidays, which is, um, uh, you know, Greek myth comics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's she's developed this this brilliant labyrinth playset. I've been meaning to, yeah, I, I've seen so much of it. Yes, she will have her episode will air before yours. Oh yay! So my listeners will be even more familiar. Fantastic. <laughs> with Greek myth comics. Well, yeah. I haven't built it yet. Because I keep meaning to do it, and then I have other things that I have to do. Oh, but that's I'm, the story of my whole life. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to build it, and the walls of my labyrinth are going to move. And yeah, it's 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 an amazing thing. So um, yeah, I I kind of see it as you know because we think differently, we can move those walls around in different configurations that maybe other people mm-hmm. don't. And I think it's a strength that maybe people don't recognize as much as they should and one of the things I want to do with Asterion is celebrate that and say you know look at what we can do if you give us a chance you mm-hmm. know look at how we can arrange things give us our own labyrinth and let us play with it the newfound love of labyrinths that's for sure mm-hmm. but also yeah, Asterion's just like I mean the the Minotaur has always been so fascinating but I always have like I think I've always at least named him, but it's still it's an interesting thing to look at him as a Asterion instead, and and look at that. I feel like I've always had a bit of a soft spot because of Theseus, and how much I hate Theseus. So obviously I have to yeah. respect Minotaur no, more. But I think I used to I used to teach in a, a primary school. I used to teach kids who were about seven or eight. Um, I didn't do it for very long, but. I I was very bad at doing what I was supposed to do. I used to get bored with whatever it was that I was teaching. And I would just sit there and I would just tell these kids stories from myth. And <laughs> they used to, you know, I would tell them stories and they would sit there and they would just be so into it. Or maybe they were just pretending. I don't know. But they looked like they were so into it. And then I would get them to, you know, go and, and draw things and write things and develop characters that they came across in the myth and you know see where they they went and and it was amazing how many of the children were drawn to the minotaur and Mm. spent a lot of time thinking about what it might be like to be the minotaur and there wasn't a kind of instinctive reaction of oh that's a monster there was like an instinctive reaction of what's it like for the monster to be in that labyrinth what's what's it like living in a labyrinth and you know i i think i think maybe we lose that because we read so much about you know theseus great hero um ariadne clever helpful brave princess and you know daedalus with the thread trick brilliant genius thread trick i mean come on was that not just the most obvious thing yeah anyway I have issues yeah. <laughs> I have yeah. issues with the great craftsman Daedalus coming up with here you are here's a bit of string um yeah you know, I, I, I really <laughs> wanted it to be more inventive than that you know maybe with a gadget but you know I I think we we read a lot of that and we see it represented in a lot of ways and I think maybe we we 
over time we lose that initial sympathy with the, mm-hmm. the monster in the maze and I think you know that's one of the things that I'm trying to get back mm-hmm. well everything about his story is so influenced by the yeah. people who are otherwise objectively bad yes. you know uh, yeah I mean he's locked away Minos is the one who says he's evil and he's killing people and Minos is also sacrificing Athenians to him as a punishment for Athens so like is Minos just like killing them is the Minotaur actually killing them or is it Minos you know like there are so many things that even in the story they give us yeah and is not clear and you know this story very rarely ends with Theseus killing the Minotaur you know you look Mm -hmm. at the the ancient sources and most of them have the episode of Ariadne getting dumped on Naxos. You know, mm-hmm. the, there's there is always the sting in the tail. There's always mm-hmm. yes, Theseus, big hero, right rotter, and you know it, it, it comes together. It's like a package. Yeah, yeah, it, it's really interesting to. I mean, certainly I've always been able to see Theseus for what he is, <laughs> but even just yeah, looking at it as that way of you know how how much of the so-called monstrosity of the minotaur is influenced by the actual creature and not the the people around it who we already know are bad so why are we listening to them why are we taking their word for it you know minos theseus like yeah who who are they to to say and it is so interesting how unique he is that's Mm. he's always my go-to for that uniqueness of the only top half animal the only singular and it is yeah you know, it's just also fascinating. It, it is. It, it's um, it's a strange one. It's kind of anomalous in, in lots of ways. And I think maybe that's mm-hmm. what what draws me to it. It's this this um, I don't know. I think I used to think of, of myths like this as kind of flippable, a bit like, you know, those um, reversible images that you see, you know, is mm-hmm. it a duck? Is it a rabbit? Um, you know, is it an old man? Is it a young man? And, you know, you, they're kind of black and white images that you flip. I used to mm-hmm. think of it as, as kind of like that. And these days when I think about myth, I think about like uh, word searches, you know, word mm. searches where you have to, you get a grid of letters and you have to find a list of words in the grid of letters. Mm-hmm. And you do that, you find the words that you were told to find. And then if you're anything like anybody I've ever met, you go looking for the rude words that aren't on the list. <laughs> you go looking for the, the, the gaps, the, the things that are in there, but maybe weren't supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I tend to think about myth. It gives you that mm-hmm. grid. It gives you that space where you can find the things that you're supposed to find, but you can also go looking for the other things that are there, but maybe weren't intended for you to pick up on, or maybe they were. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the designer of the word search put those rude words in just to make people laugh. You know, it. that's the way I tend to see myth. There's so many possibilities and some of them are in the ancient sources and some of them are just ways of using the ancient sources to mm-hmm. find a different way and I think that's what makes it so endlessly fascinating and so such a good way of explaining things or seeing things through it um, the more you can tell a story in different ways the more you can see things in different ways and I think you know that that's what it is about myth that I find so interesting mm-hmm. yeah I, I mean it's sort of a simple way of describing how this podcast has grown yeah. because it started with me just like 
reading the thing on the page and then now is let me tell you all the deep variations and also why medusa is completely you know the victim of perseus and why she was not you know and i mean that just connects back to the amount of medusa i'm seeing in in the minotaur is fascinating to me and it's sort of gonna be a newfound obsession i think (laughs) of the the ways in which the story has been presented to us that isn't actually in the sourcing yes Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so you've talked a lot about Asterion. So why don't you tell everyone where to find these? The, I mean, it's, I know it's new and fresh and still everything's, you know, still being created. But what you have now, where can we find Asterion? Absolutely. It's still a work in progress, but we are on Twitter at Asterion Hub. And we are also, we have a website which we are developing and it's at Asterion.uk. And it has all our contact details. So we're really keen to hear from people who want to get involved, who want to write for us, who want to talk to us, whatever. We're all really friendly and really, really keen to make connections with people. So anyone with an interest in classics, it doesn't have to be people who are at university or working on classics professionally it can just be people with an interest um they're very welcome to get in touch with us and write for us and hopefully at some point there will be videos and podcasts and all kinds of things but that's maybe a way off at the moment (laughs) we're just trying to meet people and make connections and really to reach the people who might benefit So Mm -hmm. we want to reach anybody who finds things a struggle, who finds that maybe the world isn't set up in a way that they can easily deal with and just wants to read stories from other people who've been through it or tips or suggestions or book recommendations or whatever, you know, anyone who thinks that it might be helpful. It's it's there to um, just give a bit of a, a thread um to follow <laughs> oh i'm really <laughs> plugging this labyrinth metaphor on it it's perfect i love <laughs> it <laughs> well i will put that link um into the podcast Thank description you. too so everyone can find that on twitter and then um do you want to plug anything of your own <laughs> but i do have another website um mm. which is classicalstudies.support and there's all sorts of chats and resources and things to do with studying Greek and Roman myth and all kinds of links and useful things. And to be honest, I haven't tidied it up in about three years. So it's just like a snowball that's grown <laughs> and grown into this massive boulder of random stuff. So, I mean, you know, that sounds wonderful. Yes. Anyone who fancies spending several years working through a load of rambling from me is very welcome to visit. Wonderful. <laughs> well, honestly, thank you so much for doing this. It's been so much fun and fascinating. No, thank you for inviting me. I've spent an entire evening talking about myth. It's like, it's like classicist heaven. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. 
Again, I'm I'm really thrilled with this episode. I'm so grateful to Cora Beth for coming on and talking with me. It was so much fun and so fascinating and just so many things I would have never thought about. Oh my god. Like yeah, I mean it's just so interesting to see to see the Minotaur as a Sterion, as a much more of a character, a, a human being in whatever way that he was. Just really beyond interesting. And at the end, as we talked about, Corbeth has started up the project called Asterion. And Asterion is is a way of looking at classics and neurodivergency and all of these things. So you can find links to everything that Corbeth mentioned in the episode's description, because you should absolutely check out Asterion. I think it's going to be really interesting, really fascinating, really important to have these, you know, broader voices, to have neurodivergent people at the table talking about these things, especially as they relate to classics. Really fascinating stuff, just all around wonderful Thank you all for listening. It's really just, it's so much fun that I get to do this. So thank you all for helping me keep it going. I am Liv and I love this shit. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.